somebody's learning about the brain, and that's exciting. I'll give you one more tidbit. There was a fairly famous man by the name of Thomas Edison who was an inventor. We have these kinds of incandescent lights because of him. He loved the brain. He thought it was so important that this is what he said. Your body's main job is just to carry your brain around. That's pretty important. So that's one reason it's important how healthy you keep your body, because it carries your brain around. But if your brain isn't working very well, I can't imagine that the body is very excited about trying to carry it anywhere. So that's why you keep your brain healthy. There's one country that I go to once a year, have for 19 years, and that's Australia. And there's only six churches in California that I am willing to commit to go to once a year because I get pretty busy. And this is one of them. And it's really fun to come back here and see the same some of the people that I saw the year before, it feels kind of comfortable. It's not like standing up in front of people and you don't know a soul. I made my first trip to Fiji, and that was an interesting experience. The first weekend, there were 1,500 people out on Sabbath to hear about the brain. They'd never heard anything about the brain. And the next Sabbath, there was 2,000. And that's exciting when people want to learn about the brain because everything starts in the brain. Nothing happens without the brain. So when I was here last year, somebody said to me, you've talked about the physiology of forgiveness and you've talked about the physiology of this, that, and the other thing as it affects the brain. Can you talk about the physiology of thinking? And I said, sure, not a problem. So I started to look up the current research on the physiology of thinking. There is none. None. So here I am with the topic of which there's no research, and it's all your fault. <laughs> but what I did find, although they don't Scientists don't know exactly how the brain thinks. They know what is good thinking and what is bad thinking. And they know how your thinking impacts your body. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I've had really a lot of fun with this, and that's your fault too. <laughs> you know, I, I say that very jokingly. Because blame is a very interesting concept. Most of the time, when people blame somebody else, it's because they feel really uncomfortable or about something. And they think, well, if I tell you it's your fault, then I won't feel so bad, which is ridiculous. But I was in the airport not long ago, and there were a couple of people having an argument. And finally, one of them says, I'm blaming you for this. And the other person said, 
but I didn't do anything. I didn't even buy the tickets. I don't care. I'm still blaming you. I thought, we need to talk a little bit about blame, don't we? Because that's really not helpful for anybody. All right, I found a couple of brain benders. See what you can do with this. What do you think that says? Peace is one of the things. Good. How many of you know anything about music? Okay. So... What is that thing in the middle? It's a quarter rest. Good. So put that together with peace, and peace is rest, is one way you could say it. But what if you turned it around and started with rest? Rest in peace. Good job. I really have fun with these. You know that. Now here's another one. Yeah, I know it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> so, what are all of those? Quarter rests. So, what happens when you're playing music and you come to a rest? What do you do? You don't play. If you're not playing, what are you hearing? Nothing. All right. So, give me a word for that. Silence works. I got a brain here that's thinking. This is very good. I'll have to look for some more of these. All right. So, the human brain forms the basis for everything. Certainly, all our thoughts and actions always follow thoughts. That's the first takeaway. You cannot have an action without first having a thought. And so, when you say, well, the devil made me do it. No, the devil did not make you do it. You had a thought, but you decided whether you wanted to do anything based on that thought. So, actions always follow thoughts. The brain is not very, it's only a small part of our brain and body organism. You know, males maybe a little over three pounds uh, for their brain, females a little bit less because we're not usually as big. But women don't think that has anything to do with how well you think. Because it's not the size as, where is he that pointed that out this morning? There you go. It's not the size. It's the connections between thinking cells. And so really, unless you're acephalic, you're born with really no brain at all, you can do a whole lot with this brain. In fact, one researcher called it the most amazing piece of biological real estate in the universe, which is kind of a fun way, I think, to talk about it. So, there are only three living species, I thought you kids might like to know this, that have brains larger than human beings. Okay, what are they? The elephant, the whale, and the porpoise. But in human beings, we've got a different body rate, weight ratio. We're not nearly as big as a, an elephant. But we have a pretty good brain. Now, this is from the book, The Biology of Thought, that was released recently. There is no existing specific 
biological or physiological explanation, not a zip none, for the seemingly simple phenomenon of thought production in the brain. But we do know, for example, and we may be talking about that this afternoon a little bit, scientists studied how information moves in the brain and they copied that to create a computer. So the human brain has a liquid crystal processor, if you will. It's the covering of the cells, the membrane, and computers have a solid crystal processor. So the, the brains, the computers actually mimic some of the stuff that physicians and researchers have found out about the brain. So what's the definition of thinking? Here's one from one of the dictionaries. Read it with me. The process of using one's mind to consider or reason about something. It's a mental behavior wherein ideas, pictures, cognitive symbolizations, or other hypothetical components of thought are experienced or manipulated. That's pretty complex, but they're trying to cover everything. In this sense, thinking includes imagining, recalling, solving problems, free association, daydreaming, concept formation, and a variety of other procedures. So they know what it'll do, but they can't tell you how. Do you know what free association is? Well, I'll give you an example. I'll say a word. You say the first thing that comes into your mind when I say this word. Ready? Smell. Okay, stinky's one. What else? Roses, that's my middle name, thank you. Nose, everybody thought of something. You might not want to say it out loud, but that's called free association. And because every brain on the planet is different, you could do this with 500 people and you probably would not get the same association. Because you get your associations with the kind of experiences you've had. So we use our brain all the time. 30 years ago, there were some researchers that said, uh, Maxwell Maltz, for one, who wrote a very interesting book, he said, I've done some experiments and I think human beings only use about 10% of their brain. No, we use all of our brain all the time. But now that we have more sophisticated equipment, what he may have been trying to say is that the conscious thought part of the brain is not very big, and it isn't. So if you understand the concept of a, an iceberg, think Titanic, that would be my association, then just that little piece above the waterline represents the tip of the iceberg. Well, that's just about what it is with the brain. Only about 90 to 95%, okay, there comes that 10% possibility. 
only about 90 to 95 percent of all the neurons in your brain, which is probably a minimum of 86 billion in brain proper, another 15 billion in the cerebellum, and so on. So that's not very much. So maybe 10 percent. So the brain takes in 20 million bits of information, estimated now, the research was 10 billion bits of information every second about what's going on around you and how your body feels and what the temperature is and are there any odors here and so on. You can't possibly process that all the time. You, you would be able to not even do anything, but trying to pay attention to 10 billion bits of data, not going to happen. But your subconscious takes it in and processes it. And as it's processing that information, if it puts things together, it'll sometimes say, I think something is not right over there. And it will give us an intuitive flash. And we'll think, hmm, looks like traffic's building up down there. Wonder if there's a bad accident. I better slow down. And you might not have even thought of that that quickly if your brain wasn't taking in information all the time and then giving it to you. So 10 to 15% of all of this stuff that the brain takes in ever comes to conscious awareness. It's not very much. So here's a cutaway of the brain, and you've probably seen that before. Up there on the top is the neocortex, or the third brain layer. And that's the only part of the brain where there's any conscious thought. And researchers believe that happens right behind your forehead. But remember, only 10 or 15% of anything that happens ever comes to that part of the brain where you can consciously think about it. You've got that middle or mammalian layer called mammalian because all mammals have that part. And are we mammals? Yes, yes we are. Then you go down to that first brain layer called the reptilian layer because that's all the brain reptiles have. It's not very much. We do have that part of the brain, and that's where all the fight, flight, tend, befriend, conserve, withdraw, stress responses are housed. And so when most of us see a snake, then that part of the brain goes back away, danger. You know, snakes are only interested in safety, really, unless they're hungry. They don't want to be bothered, and um, they don't like to be bothered. And some of them even have a way to notify us that we're disturbing them. What is that way? They got rattles. <laughs> Somebody said to me today, I wish, that, I wish people had rattles so that we could know the, the ones that weren't in a good mood that day. And I said, you know, if you pay attention, your brain is registering the electromagnetic energy that other brains put out. And you'll sense sometimes, I think this is not a good day for me to talk to that person about this. And pay attention to it. Have you ever gone into a meeting, sat down, felt uncomfortable, got up, moved to another place, sat down, felt fine? 
Most of us have done that. And researchers think that you moved because your brain registered some very negative electromagnetic energy coming out of some brain around you, having a really bad day, and your brain does not like to be around negativity, which is interesting. So 80% of your brain is subconscious, and as Dr. Pert said, that includes your entire body, because your body is always sending information to the brain as it takes in that from the outside. So let's just talk about the difference between conscious and non-conscious thought, and then we'll talk about some of the things we do know about the brain and thinking, although we do not know about the physiology. So conscious thoughts, they're the ones that you're aware of. You can explain and discuss them in a logical or rational way most of the time. And then there's subconscious thoughts, and of the two, research says subconscious thoughts are much more complex and very difficult to define because they operate in the mind below the sense of consciousness. They're part of the, the you know, underneath the surface that you can't see of that iceberg. Think of them as unreportable mental activities or the totality of all the mental processes that go on all the time, day and night, that we are unaware of. And therein lies, how do you take care of your brain? Because so much of it is subconscious, what are you putting into it? Because that subconscious part of the brain, if you put it in or allowed it to go in, let's say you watch a really, really scary movie, and then you go to sleep and your subconscious mind says, you know, they watched that movie today. Um, they must be frightened about something. Maybe I'll remind them of what that movie was like and you wake up in the middle of the night screaming, screaming bloody murder because you're scared because you put that information into your brain and that subconscious was working on it. The human state of consciousness, this is the last quote I'll give you, but I really find this one interesting. It's difficult to define, all right, we know that, but is characterized by a state in which you know what you believe. Can you think of a Bible text that goes with that? I know in whom I have believed. You know what you believe. You know what you know. There's lots of things I don't know, and I'm perfectly willing to tell you I don't know that. Some people don't want to admit they don't know it, but no brain can know everything. You know what you imagine. You know what you decide and plan. You feel what you feel. Explains nothing. Absolutely explains nothing. Wakefulness is necessary. In other words, to know what you know, to know what you believe, you have to be awake because when you're sleeping, you're not doing that kind of processing. But it's not sufficient for consciousness. 
A great deal has been learned about the neural mechanisms associated with wakefulness, but that hasn't helped much in understanding consciousness. It's still a mystery. So I really need to thank you, not only for coming out, because you're the reason I'm here, but for asking me to talk about the physiology of thinking because this was a new branch of brain function I hadn't spent much time on, and I'm having lots of fun. All right, subconscious mind functions independently from the conscious mind, and it never rests. It never sleeps. It's constantly working, and it is far more powerful than the conscious mind, which is a little scary. So one of the researchers said this, think about a time when you couldn't remember somebody's name or you couldn't remember a date or you couldn't remember something else. And you said maybe to your brain, Arlene, you are remembering such, as su such and such. And then after a while, it pops right into your mind, to your subconscious mind. It heard what you wanted. And if it was stored in there, it went looking for it for you. Now, sometimes it doesn't get it there in time to do any good. <laughs> I've already left the seminar, and then I remember the person's name. <laughs> but it nevertheless is working for you to get you what it thinks you want to know. To be successful in achieving your goals, your subconscious thoughts must be in line with your conscious ones. And that's another way of saying that the way you talk to yourself is the way you program your subconscious mind. Because you can program it to be successful, you can program it to reach your goals, you can program it to, be very, to do very evil things. So it is extremely important how you program that subconscious mind. So I don't think we'll talk much about this. Basically, neurons are the thinking cells. They're the only cells in your brain and body that can think consciously. You've got lots of neurons in your gut, but they don't really think consciously. They just give you symptoms to get your attention. You know, and if you're anxious or something isn't going well, Maybe you'll have stomach cramps. Maybe you'll have diarrhea. Maybe you'll get constipated. Um, maybe you'll have all kinds of flatus, you know, whatever. Your GI tract will give you symptoms to tell you something isn't going right, but it can't help you consciously think like the brain does. So you've got neurons that carry signals from the brain to your spinal cord. There's neurons that carry signals from your brain, from your body up to your brain. There are neurons that connect these two pathways, the one that goes north and the one that goes south. And without that, you never have any pain. So let's say you smash your toe on the corner of the bed frame. Your toe isn't feeling any pain. But your toe sends a message sensory message up to the brain that says, you know, this toe doesn't look like it did five seconds ago. It's bleeding and it hurts like old Harry. And the brain registers that as pain. 
And it's so interesting to me that the only place you feel pain is in your brain. It doesn't matter where in the body the trigger came from. All right, so I think I got six things or so. Let's go through these quickly. These are things that we think we know about thinking and about the brain. So your brain can only do what it thinks it can do. If you think you can, or if you think you can't, either way you're right. Because your subconscious will follow those thoughts. And you might find it interesting to look up some of those scriptures because they talk about thinking. In order to program your subconscious, stop talking about what you don't want to do. Never mention it again. Only talk about what you do want to do as if it's a done deal. Because every thought you think is converted into a picture. Your subconscious mind doesn't use language, but it sees the picture. And it thinks, okay, that's what you want to have happen, so I'll have you, I'll help you make that happen. So if you sit, what do you play? Do you play an instrument? What? Piano. Good. Good man. It's a way to start. So supposing you say to yourself, you get a new piece of music, and you go, I can't do this. This is too hard. Guess what? Your brain's not going to help you very much trying even to learn it. But if you say, and this is what I would say, Arlene, this is a new piece of music. You learn this new piece of music. You have fun with it. And your brain goes, oh, really? Okay, fine, let's go. Let's start. Page one. And it does work. All right, when you watch another person's behavior, there are neurons, thinking cells, behind your brain, behind your forehead, in your brain, that are called mirror neurons. So when you look in a mirror, you see a representation of yourself. When you watch somebody else play the piano, the neurons in your brain start firing as if you were doing it. Even if it's more difficult than you know how to do now, it processes it as if you're doing it. So if you watch somebody with ugly behavior on a movie, your brain looks at that and fires as if you were doing the ugly behavior. And then several days later, there might be a, something that happens very similar to what happened in the movie. And what are you more likely to do? You're more likely to repeat what you saw. And that's what researchers believe happens in copycat murders. There's this big, you know, television thing talking about all of the ugly stuff that happened. And they've got a brain that's a little unbalanced and their mere neurons are firing, and 10 days later, there's a copycat murder here and over there and somewhere else. So it's very important what you watch. When you watch something bad happening to somebody else, let's say that you're in a school setting and 
there's somebody that's exhibiting bullying behavior and usually those kind of people are very insecure and very fearful and try to feel powerful by hurting other people. They're not doing it to you. You're just watching it. Because of mirror neurons, <clears throat> it might as well be happening to you. So, <clears throat> now we know that witnessed abuse of any kind is as damaging to the person witnessing it emotionally as it is to the person that was being abused. When you do something once, once, your brain is already laying down a highway so that if you ever want to do it again, you got the outline of a road. And the more you do it, the more layers of myelin, the more blacktop gets put down there, so pretty soon that's a pretty nice paved road. And it's really easy to travel on. And it's hard for me sometimes to get across this to teenagers or adults whose brains are not quite done yet because they'll say, I just want to try it. I just want to do it once. It's probably not good for me, but I'd like to try it once. And I say, be careful what you do once because you've already got a pathway started to be laying down, a road to follow. And once you get them laid down, you can't ever dig them up. You can create a bypass, but that's the problem with uh, addictive behaviors. I was working with, I've worked with people with addictive behaviors for half a century. I worked with one man who was addicted to cigars and getting already problems with his lungs and he finally got clean of cigars. So 15 years later, I'm doing another session and here comes this person and I think I recognize the face. I don't know where I've seen him. I don't know their name, but I know the face. I said, don't I know you? Yes, he said, you do. I was here 15 years ago. I said, well, come on in. What's your story? Well, he said, you know, I didn't have a cigar for 15 years. And I know you told me that the cigar smoking highway would always be in my brain, but I didn't believe you. So he said, my daughter got married and had some old cronies show up. And they said, hey, Ted, let's smoke a cigar for old time's sake. And I thought, I haven't smoked for 15 years, won't be a problem to smoke once. I'm back on the old highway. I forgot it was still there. So that's another reason for being very careful of the behaviors you develop because you can relapse back into them your whole life. All right, short-term memory, right up here, right in the middle. Short-term memory is wonderful. It uh, lets you remember a telephone number long enough to dial it. You know, seven little bits of information. But it doesn't last for very long. Have you ever left one room, walked into another room, and said, what am I in here for? Right. Okay, here's the solution. It's easy. When your brain moves through anything that looks like a doorway, it scrubs working memory to get ready for whatever's new on the other side. So if you're going in the other room, not to find something new, but to find the scissors, 
As you walk through the door, you say, Arlene, you are here for scissors. It keeps it in working memory, and you never have to back up in the other room again and say, what was I here for? All right. Seven to 10 seconds, and we know this from brain scans, before you become consciously aware of a thought, your brain is already thinking that thought. And sometimes that's because of how you've trained it. And sometimes, I believe, other things can actually put thoughts into your brain. So free will is probably operational only when you become aware that you're thinking a thought. That's where you have the choice. Do I keep thinking this thought and do I take some action on it or do I go, I change what I'm thinking? And human beings have the ability to do that. And we don't even think animals think conscious thoughts per se. So this is pretty much human. To program your subconscious, and I, I alluded to this, Affirmation is the programming language of the subconscious, meaning it does not deal with negatives. Whatever you say creates a picture. If I say to you, don't touch the stove, what's the first picture? Touching the stove. The brain misses the don't, so we tell a little kid, don't touch the stove, they miss the don't, there's the picture, they touch the stove, they burn their fingers, what do we do? Yell at them for disobeying. Duh. Who gave them the picture? So you never, ever use negative thoughts to program or words to program the subconscious. I would say now, I didn't when my kids were little, I would say now, keep your hand away from the stove, it's hot. What's the picture? There's the stove, here's your hand. Can you see how different that is from don't touch the stove? So when you tell yourself, I don't want to do that anymore, what's the picture? You see the thing that you didn't want to do, so that makes your subconscious think you really want to do it. You must only tell yourself what you want to do in positive present tense language as if it's happening now. And that's why I think the Apostle Paul tells us what to think about. And you know that verse. What are we told to think about? Whatever things are lovely, pure, good, of good report, honest, on and on. Only positive things. You read the Lord's Prayer, it's only written in positive language. Did you know that? And that's our role model. Daniel Wegner, wonderful researcher, he wrote a book called uh, The Phenomenon of the White Bear or something like that. He says, if I tell you, don't think about the white bear, what are you thinking about? And how long are you going to think about the white bear? <laughs> I, was, I was talking to a group of 
freshman college students. You know, this is nothing against freshman college students. I was one once. But their brains aren't done. Their brains won't be done till late 20s. And I was teaching them how to program themselves for success and use the white bear phenomenon model. And so I said, don't think about the white bear. And a pretty sharp kid in the back put his hand up and he says, Dr. Taylor, what do you want me to think about? Okay, that's brilliant for someone whose brain isn't done yet. And one of his classmates says, well, what do you think? She wants you to think about a brown bear. <laughs> and somebody else says, no, she doesn't. She wants you to think about a black bear. And then a girl said, that's very proud of her, who says she wants you to think about a bear at all? Good question. So we had an interesting discussion about that. So he says, if you tell someone a negative, in this case, don't think about the white bear, a representation about a white bear goes into your brain's working memory, remember? And you'll likely think about it even more frequently. So parents and teachers and adults and young people and even children need to think about what is it that you want? Telling somebody what not to do is unhelpful. What do you want yourself to do? What do you want them to do? Only talk about that. Which, just as a reminder, the brain thinks in pictures. Everything you think, everything you say, everything you read, everything you watch gets turned into a picture in your head which influences subconscious mind. All we are is energy, you know that. When we're out of energy, we die. Pretty much all we are is energy. Your brain body energy is just hand in glove with the way you think. So the author of the Energy Handbook says, first thing in the morning, find something to be thankful for. Think something positive, and your energy will be higher the whole day than if you wake up thinking, oh, great Scotland Yard, it's Monday again, and I really hate my job. I should have finished high school. I should have finished my trade school or whatever. Just hate this job. And you get up and you'll drag to work all day. And you won't make a good impression on anybody because everything starts in your brain. Anger, fear, saying negative things even in a joking way. Researchers did PET scan studies and they had the person say, I feel like a bad day is coming on. And certain parts of the brain lit up. The amygdala, for one, that has to do with fear and anxiety. And then they had people say, today is a good day. I'm so glad I woke up this morning. Some people didn't. I enjoy life. I enjoy what I'm doing. Sure, there's a few problems, but, you know, I've dumped half of my problems just the way I think. And you will have a much better day. 
So John Gordon says, think positively about the day ahead and you increase your mental and physical energy. Remember the story of Paul and Silas in jail. And they had their feet in stocks sitting on this horrible cold cement cell and they didn't know what was going to happen to them. They had no idea. What were they doing? Singing. What kind of songs were they singing? Praise songs. Thank you, Lord, I'm still alive. You know, my life is in your hands. If you want me to keep doing this, protect me. But whatever you want is okay with me. Were they scared and trembling in jail? No, they were not. Because everything starts in the brain. Number six. It appears that you do think with your heart. Now, I'm a preacher's kid, I told you that. Sat of school one day. I had, to, I had to memorize scripture every week. My dad made me memorize a new scripture and where it was found. Probably a good thing because the part of my brain where I have the best energy advantage is about thoughts. It's not, you know, just rote memorization. I used to get in trouble for that. I and I used to look for the shortest memory verses I could find to memorize. My favorite, favorite one was Christ wept. It was only two words. And pray without ceasing was only three. And, you know, as you think in your heart, so are you, wasn't many more. So those were the kind of texts I wanted to memorize. I said to the Bible teacher, how do you think with your heart? That's probably about nine. He says, well, you know, <clears throat> the Bible was written by fishermen. They really didn't understand much about anything. And so when you repeat that text, you know, forget about heart and say, as you think in your mind, so are you. Okay, so I did that for like 10 years. I believed him. And then we started <coughs> getting, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it's fall <coughs> and I have some allergies. Uh, so we got some brain function research and we found that every heart has, a, every heart that's been analyzed and it's less than the size of your fist if it's normal, has a minimum of 40,000 neurons. That's quite a bit for an organ that we thought was just a muscle. But though, oh, you're wonderful. Can you take the lid off for me? Thank you. <clears throat> I should be good to go. Don't you love people who figure out what you need before you think enough to ask for it? Okay, where was I? Oh, yes. 40,000 neurons. But remember, I told you earlier on that there's lots of neurons in the body, but apparently only the neurons in your brain, about 20% of them, actually have the conscious thought capability. But what researchers learned was you're still thinking with your heart. It's just now the heart has to figure out how to tell the brain what it's thinking, and then 
it can come to conscious awareness. And we have expressions in our language. We talk about a heavy heart. We talk about a sad heart. We talk about a heartache when something bad happens. And we talk about happy hearts. So I'm trying to have a happy heart all the time because it's going to impact what I think and what happens to my body. So it appears that Proverbs was correct, that we do think with our hearts. We, as I mentioned, have lots of neurons in other parts of the body, and the research is in our gut. We probably have as many neurons as are in our heart, and maybe plus what's in our spinal cord but they're not the conscious thought neurons. They have to send the information up to the brain where it gets decoded and then it tells us how we feel. Do I have a stomach ache? You know, do I feel bloated? Do I feel hungry? Boy, I shouldn't have eaten that. You know, that kind of thing. But researchers are now saying that if you want to make the best decisions you think cognitively what you should do, then you check it with your gut. If you say, Arlene, you are doing this, how does your body feel? Because if it's something you really shouldn't do, often your body will give you some kind of signal. You feel uneasy or you feel sick to your stomach because that's one of the ways the subconscious tries to get your attention so you can think about something. And we have good intuition often as children, and then we shut that down as we grow older, and we say, oh, that can't be right. Can't think about that. That's probably not right. And that's unfortunate. I'll tell you one experience. When I, my mother homeschooled me uh, through the fifth grade, Went to school in the sixth grade, and I did not like the male teacher. I couldn't stand to be anywhere near him. I'd stand way far away from his desk when I was talking to him. And I didn't know why, and I went home and I said, I don't like that teacher. And my parents says, oh, I'm sure he's fine. Don't be silly. That whole year, I never went near him. I stayed as far away from him as I could. Did not know why, but I just felt uncomfortable. For grade seven, we moved to another church. Fast forward, I mean, that was the late 1800s. You know, fast forward till really not all that long ago. And I had an old classmate from that school call up and she said, do you remember so-and-so? And I, and I got that same funny feeling in my stomach. And I said, yes, I remember, I did not like him. Well, she said, good on you. She said he died a few years ago and I just found out that that was the fifth school he'd been moved to because he had inappropriately touched many students. And instead of firing him, they just moved him to another school hoping, hoping it would be better then. I believe we pick up a sense, and we need to pay attention to that. Now, when I get a feeling and I can't account for it, you know, I'm going to think about it consciously and say, is there any, do I have anything to back this up? 
If I don't and I still feel that way, then I may not do that thing. And sometimes I actually find out a reason that I didn't do that thing. So intuition is built into the right frontal lobe and the brain doesn't talk to us literally, but it will give us impressions of things we should not do or things that we should do. The people I'm staying with this weekend, we went out to lunch yesterday and we had a lovely little waitress. And as we were finishing the meal, the woman I was with said, I am just impressed. I'm impressed to give her a $20 tip. And I said, hey, if that's how you feel, do it. I wasn't impressed to give her $20. I wasn't, but she was. So when we're getting ready to leave, she says to the, to the waitress, I just feel impressed to give you this $20. Uh, we really enjoyed having you, and I want you to get something for yourself that you've wanted that maybe you don't have the money for. What do you suppose she did? She burst into tears and said, it's been a long time since I had any money to spend on myself. I know exactly what I'm gonna get. Thank you. So I call that random acts of kindness. And you know, I, you gotta be careful with that, but she felt really strongly it made a difference in that woman's life. Okay, and the last one. The subconscious mind finds it easier to continue what's familiar and self-protective, even if it's uncomfortable and less successful. Hello? So you grow up learning to do something, and maybe you were told that you were not very bright, and so you don't really try very hard. You know, you basically get through high school, but I'm not smart enough to go on to college. I'll go work at McDonald's. And there's nothing wrong with working at McDonald's. But the piece of paper you can get with even two years of college open doors for you. So, it's familiar to believe that you're not very smart. And it's comfortable in the sense that you don't even try anything new because you think you can't do it anyway. And that is not scriptural. Because scripture says what? I can do all things through Christ. Exactly. So you need to understand that the tendency for the brain sometimes is to believe what other people say when it was not true and to just go along with it. No. What do you want to do in life? How do you want to bless others? What, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? You can do anything that's doable. I mean, you're not going to grow to be six feet tall so you can reach the top cabinets. <laughs> you know, it's very nice if you happen to be married to somebody who's very tall because I'm carting around the three the three-step stool everywhere. <laughs> but what do, you, what do you want to do? You can do, your brain will help you do anything that you think you can do.
and you can do everything through Christ who strengthens you. So we got lots of pictures showing that uh, the brain looks one way when you're happy, you get a different pattern when you're unhappy. Happiness, look at that top brain, that's an unhappy brain. Nothing much is going on behind the, the, your forehead. The second brain, look all of the pink right here behind your forehead. That's happiness, those, fire, those neurons are firing happily. And happiness increases your energy and you can do all things. So let's finish up with this. I like this quotation from the heart math solution. They study how the heart connects with the brain. And by the way, any of you who want nursing credit or if you're an ancillary profession and you want CE credit, I've got the forms out in the lobby and I've given you enough time so it counts for an hour of credit. Just fill out the form and give it to me and I'm happy to give that to you as my Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> All right, read this last quotation with me. Your habitual attitudes form neural circuits in the brain, pathways. If you choose to maintain a specific attitude, the brain can literally rewire itself to facilitate that attitude. So, have you met some very, very, very grumpy older people? Nobody wants to be around them. They're a pain in the patootie because nothing's ever right. When you talk to people who knew them well, what do you suppose they said? They were grumpy as kids. And they maintained that attitude and wired it into their brain. So think now about how you want to be when you're very old and start living that now because I want to be a cheerful, happy, empowered, my life is good, I'm so glad I was allowed to be born person when I'm 120. Thank you. Were you blessed this morning? We have a fellowship lunch for anyone who wishes to fellowship and eat some food because we'll be back at 2 and also 3, as you can see on the front of your programs, uh, to learn more. So let's close out with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you've given us life, you've given us our brains, our ability to choose. Lord, Help us to apply what we're hearing so that our minds can um, think about better things and can help us to do better things and live more joyfully and walk more humbly following after you and your path. Thank you for this special day. Continue to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen.